Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, October 12th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, by the time you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. You can either email me at tjhmindshifters-academy.org, or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. 
or you can give us a call at 563-999-3581. If you do that and press 1 on your phone, it'll let us know you have a comment or a question. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we appreciate when anybody does any of that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be a service. And it's just far easier to do when people let us know what's working for them, what's not working for them, where they might be stuck, where they're having great success, etc. And... We had one day off this week because of technical difficulties, but now we're back, and yesterday we spent the bulk of the day reading from Diedrich Wolzak's book, Choose Again, is the title of the book, and trying to help people understand the similarities between various Worksheets like Byron Katie's The Work and Michael Rice's Reality Management Worksheet and Diedrich Wolzak's The Choose Again Six-Step Method. He used to call it the Forgiveness Method. And um, primarily because we understand that the more different angles we take to observe directly how something works for us as human beings, how we process our thoughts and emotions, how they're related, what we do have control over, what we can shift and focus consciously, and what we can learn about the unconscious dynamics that drive our perceptions. Um, The more we actively explore that, the more options we have for improving the quality of our life experience. And when we see these things from these various perspectives, we tend to get a deeper understanding more quickly, more efficiently, than if we just stay looking at ourselves, looking at our situation from a single perspective. We have plenty of time for comments and questions, 563-999-3581. Call that number and press 1. Or we'll get back into the reading of the Choose Again Six-Step Method from Diedrich Wolzak. The last thing we ended with was the story about the person Josie and how she had a a very complex series of events that led her to be an aspiring Olympic athlete and have eating disorders and all kinds of other issues. And when she did the six-step choose-again worksheet process, she tapped into a memory of being three years old and getting a kidney infection and having to go through medical procedures, which were akin to sexual 
uh, molestation and um, downloaded a whole bunch of beliefs about herself as being unworthy and lots of other negative beliefs. And when she dismantled them, it led to dramatic changes in her life as an adult. And the last couple of paragraphs in that story, Diedrich is writing that Josie went through all of this just because she couldn't stand to feel her feelings. And the doctors cooperated by suppressing those feelings with medications. She didn't examine her feelings in a healthy way as they came up. Here, you can see just how important it is that we learn to tune into our most difficult feelings and even welcome them so that we can follow them to the subconscious beliefs that need to be transformed. There is a school of thought affirming that expressing your feelings all by itself is therapeutic. Expressing your anger or having a really good cry may definitely feel good and you will likely experience some sense of relief, but ultimately it does not correct the beliefs that in Dietrich's understanding of this process it's the beliefs that choose the anger or the deep sadness or the anxiety the beliefs that I hold in my unconscious whenever they get stimulated into activity according to Diedrich's way of talking about it it's the beliefs I hold that choose the emotions I experience in a moment So he's already talked about how there's an appendix in his book about a feelings worksheet, and they list feelings alphabetically, a whole slew of them, for people who need assistance in identifying what emotion they're feeling. The next segment is titled, Going Straight for the Emotion. And Diedrich writes, what everyone learns to do quickly with the six-step process is to ask, quote, how are you feeling, rather than what is your story, or what happened, or even more deadly, why do you feel that way? So if you're in a relationship and your partner's really upset, rather than letting him or her tell the story associated with the upset, as in, quote, the doctor kept me waiting for 45 minutes this morning, close quotes, you would ask, Tell me how it feels. Let's get to the feeling. The reason for that is because when we know that the feeling, when we know the feeling, it will take us to the underlying belief, and it's the belief we actually have to work on. Particularly when you are new to the idea of allowing feelings to surface, it can be helpful to utilize the feeling sheet, which is in the appendix of this book, which features 70 different feelings. Seeing them all written out this way can help you identify what you are feeling at any given moment or on a regular basis. In the Choose Again circles, it's usually for participants to select, it is usual for participants to select all the feelings that apply to them and then choose the top three, 
or the most intense feelings to work on. When processing on your own, I would urge you to trace every feeling back to the first time you felt it and what belief has chosen it. Each feeling you have identified on the sheet has been chosen by a belief. They may well all come from the same belief or they may have been generated by a variety of beliefs. It matters not how many beliefs play into an upset. What matters is my commitment and yours to trace them back to their source, which is a mistaken belief. And here, his his understanding of the process is pretty much identical to Dr. Michael Rice's and the way of mastery in the Course in Miracles. If you have a negative thought or a negative belief, you can instantly know it's false. It's not about your true nature. It's not possible for there to be a bad fact about you at your core, at your essence, because you are the miracle of life expressing in form. You are creation expressing. You are what some would call the energy of creation or the energy of love. Diedrich goes on and writes, if you're on mood-altering medications, chances are you will have a difficult time feeling as the meds are designed to dull the feelings you're running from. And this becomes a classic vicious circle. The healing work that is undertaken then runs the risk of becoming an intellectual exercise in which real healing is not likely to happen. We must be willing to honestly look at our feelings and we must also be able to accept and access those feelings. We have to be able to feel in order to take the feeling back to the belief and then do the forgiveness that will lead to the necessary transformation of those beliefs. The next section is titled, The Role of Medication. Many of the clients that come to me for healing are on medications, particularly antidepressants. In all my years of counseling, I've only had two clients that I felt really benefited from being on the meds as they had severely limiting beliefs which were deeply buried and fiercely protected. What I have found over the years is that typically people aren't on just one medication. There's always a second or a third or a fourth because the first one didn't work. The second one doesn't really help, and the third one is just adding more difficulties and so on. One person was on 16 different medications when she came to our center for healing. He writes, I remember an elderly client I saw many years ago. He was on 12 medications, and it quickly became apparent that they were, we were not going to be able to help access any true feelings other than the dark blanket of sadness, which had become a permanent state for him. After several sessions, I contacted his psychiatrist and said, Mr. Peterson is on many medications, and I'm not seeing much improvement. The psychiatrist said, then said a few words I've never forgotten. Quote, Mr. Peterson will never improve, close quotes. The statement aroused just a wee bit of passion in me. 
So I insisted on a meeting with him and our mutual patient. We then heard a by now familiar story. Virtually every medication that had been, had been prescribed was designed to ease the negative effects of the one before. Mr. Peterson is now off all meds and has a vastly improved quality of life. This is by no means a unique story. It's been played out many times over the last 15 years. The vast majority of my clients with depression are able to wean themselves off their meds and stay off. Why is that? They learn that depression is not a choice. It is a choice, not a disease. They learn that depression is not something that is in their genes. They learn the real reason for their depression is not that their grandmother was depressed, but they themselves at one point made a wrong choice, a mistaken interpretation. And that choice became the genesis for their underlying negative beliefs. As soon as those beliefs shift by using the six-step process, the depression lifts. Antidepressants are legal drugs prescribed by doctors who firmly believe they will help. And they often do help initially. It is just a statistical fact that over time, their efficacy lessens to nothing. In fact, over time, meds become the problem, and that's because the real issues were never addressed. It's as if I decided to do a line of cocaine whenever I felt tired or sad. I would miraculously feel so much better almost immediately. And that would work for a while, but then I'd need more and more coke just to keep going, and the initial benefit, in quotes, would completely vanish. This is an absurd strategy, regardless of the kind of drug. There's a lot of evidence showing that antidepressants can lead to suicide, particularly in teens. I've had many clients, including Josie, report that their suicidal ideation began when they started taking their medications. Suicide is even listed as, predictable, as a predictable side effect of some antidepressants. How could a doctor prescribe such dangerous drugs? It's not because they're uncaring, but because they're not informed. They're grossly overworked, and they often have to diagnose patients in seven-minute consultations. Let me be very clear. There is a role for medication. If someone is suicidal or severely depressed or ripped apart by anxiety, medication can bring relief. And as such, it is invaluable. It should not, however, become life support or a life sentence, except in a very few cases. For pharmaceutical companies, the system of drug dependence works brilliantly. Shareholders demand profits, and profits are delivered at an obscene level. Some of the people who come to us for healing have been diagnosed with ADHD, for which they're on medication. Once they're at the center, they quickly go off these meds, and they find that they really didn't have ADHD. Their symptoms vanish because during their time with us, they're not eating sugar. They're not attached to a computer or a smartphone or a TV. They're getting fresh air and exercise on a regular basis. They're learning how to meditate. And most importantly, they're healing the beliefs that gave rise to their symptoms in the first place. In addition to lifestyle changes, the person with ADHD has to find the purpose of the illness 
in their lives. Every illness serves a purpose. And if you want to heal, really heal, you have to first know what that purpose is. And then you have to decide that you no longer want it. What purpose might attention deficit hyperactivity disorder serve? ADHD conveniently delivers the evidence for numerous core beliefs, such as I'm not capable or I don't deserve to be happy. One of the the authors on um, group therapy works and studied group therapy quite a bit, his name is Yalom, Y-A-L-O-M. And he's quoted here as saying, the pain is there. When you close one door on it, it knocks to come in somewhere else. Diedrich writes, many years ago when I had the great privilege of facilitating a circle of teenagers at an inner city school, at one point I asked the kids in the circle, what the worst thing, what was the worst thing that ever happened in their lives? These kids came from unimaginably difficult home circumstances. Mother prostitute, father dead, mother dead, father in jail, mother, father, both in jail, father abusive. You get the idea. So when I asked that question, I expected to hear a variety of issues tied to life circumstances. One young woman, 15 years old, immediately raised her hand and said, the worst thing that ever happened to me was the day I was diagnosed with a learning disability. That's not quite what I expected. So I asked, would you say a little bit more about that? She replied, the day I received that diagnosis, I was given permission or actually encouraged in a weird way to never try again. One client we have is a woman in her early 40s who suffers from debilitating pain. There is no medical explanation for that pain. Tests have not showed a physical cause, and she is desperate. When we started helping her look at the payoff from that pain, she quickly realized that when she was little, the only way she ever got attention from her busy professional parents was to have an illness. That belief masked an underlying belief of simply not being lovable at all. She experienced great discomfort and had sought medical relief for her symptoms over and over and over again. As a culture, we abhor discomfort and will inevitably seek outside ourselves to alleviate it. Our intolerance for pain and discomfort feeds all kinds of addictions. But in order to do truly deep healing work, we have to feel, and that can be uncomfortable. If we mask our feelings, physical or emotional, whether it's with drugs, meds, online obsessions, or shopping, we will not allow ourselves to receive the gift that's inherent in discomfort. We must resolutely be vigilant and become aware of our feelings at all times, even the tiniest ripples of irritation. 700 years ago, the great Sufi sage and poet Rumi said, if you are irritated by every rub, how will your mirror ever be published or polished? 
you're irritated by every rub, how will your mirror ever be polished? The next section is titled Feelings and Parenting. How important is it for parents to be aware of their feelings and own them? Children typically feel responsible for their parents' moods and feelings, so it is vitally important to let children know at all times that whatever we are feeling has nothing to do with the children. Our children do not make us happy or sad. No one does. We choose the feelings we experience. So if we get in the habit of sharing our feelings with our children and teach them how we process these feelings, then we are demonstrating that we take 100% responsibility for what we're feeling and we're teaching them to do the same. They'll soon see that they're not the cause of anyone else's feelings. This frees them to do the only job they have at that time, which is to be a child. I would also want to teach my child that his or her worth is intrinsic and cannot be changed. His or her worth doesn't increase by getting great grades, nor does it decrease by smoking pot or making dumb mistakes. Because their worth is intrinsic, they have absolutely nothing to prove either way. It isn't their job to make me happy. It isn't their job to keep mommy and daddy together. It isn't their job to make peace in the family. Their job is to be kids. And their destiny is to fall in love with their higher self. The way to teach that, of course, is by demonstrating it yourself. It's important to be at peace whenever we address children. A productive, meaningful conversation won't happen without that peace. In fact, the opposite might happen instead. If the parent is not at peace, the child will automatically take on the disease of the parent. She will make it her fault and then shut out that parent. You may have noticed that whenever you blame anyone, be it a child or your partner, they tune out. They just do not want to hear it. They just do not want to feel once again that they are the cause of your upset because they already feel just that at a very deep level. How do you feel when someone lays a guilt trip on you? You don't enjoy it. You may tend to recoil, withdraw, or defend. Our children don't enjoy it either. Kids and partners do not like to hear the accusatory, you. They will listen, however, to, this is what's going on for me. And then we can see that they're not, they can see that they are not implicated in whatever it is you're bringing up. A conversation about feelings is very useful for everyone to practice around the dinner table or in the car or on the soccer, soccer practice. And parents can talk about what happened to them that day and how that, I'm, I'm going to choose the phrase, he says how it made them feel, how they've generated feelings, as in, quote, my secretary made a sloppy mistake and it cost me an account. Boy, was I angry. I really wanted to blame her. I even thought of firing her, but then I took a deep breath and I realized that my anger had nothing to do with her mistake or what that mistake cost me. 
my anger is always about something I have made up about myself, close quotes. Imagine showing up with your feelings to a 17-year-old. I should read that more accurately. Imagine showing up with your feelings to a 7-year-old. Once you remove the word you from your vocabulary, kids start to listen. They will be riveted because of your honesty about what came up for you. You will have demonstrated that your own feelings, regardless of the story you're telling, you own your own feelings. You've created them and you're experiencing them because of a process within you. Of course, you would have to continue the process and show them that you were able to regain your sense of peace after that upset. This is what it means to be a parent, to be a teacher. True parenting means teaching our children to take full responsibility for all their feelings and actions by leading the way and doing it as a role model. By the way, it's also important to convey to our children that everything that arises is an opportunity for healing. And in this sense, nothing ever, quote, goes wrong, close quotes. Everything is an opportunity for healing and learning. Now that's an exciting idea. About 10 years ago, I was working with a couple who were in turmoil. They believed they hated each other and wanted a divorce. In one or two sessions, we were able to clear some limiting beliefs, or at least become aware of the devastation that those beliefs caused in the marriage. And things began to turn around for them. The husband had begun meditating, using meditation as a tool to help him still his mind and find inner peace. One day, they brought their two boys, four and five years old, to a session. These kids acted like little beasts. They ran around the room making noises and distracting everyone. That night, the father was meditating at home when the four-year-old, who had a slightly warped sense of humor, blew up a paper bag and popped it by his father's head. To say that Dad was a little triggered is a clear understatement. The dad lost it and sent the kid from the room. The next morning, the child came down to breakfast and said to his father, Daddy, when you were upset last night, that wasn't really about me, was it? That, that boy had learned in the counseling session, the one where he didn't seem to be paying any attention, that he was not responsible for his father's anger. The release one feels when no longer taking on someone else's upset is enormous, huge. Now that is successful child-rearing. That is successfully raising children to know that they are not responsible for how someone else feels. Now, of course, the next step is also for the child to look at why he needed to pop that paper bag in his father's face. What was he looking for? Probably punishment. That is, he was looking for a reaction from his father that would be consistent with the belief that he already had about himself that he's a problem child. Whatever the exact belief, that has to be examined and processed also. 
what were you thinking when you blew up that paper bag? Was there something about your dad meditating that annoyed or upset you in any sense? How do you feel when you see dad meditating? A little word of advice for those with teenage children. Don't enter a fight with a teenager. It is a losing proposition. The teenage brain cannot follow a logical argument. Instead, talk about feelings. Thus, if I'm in a conflict with my teenager, I'm going to say, here's what I'm feeling, and here's what's coming up for me. I'm interpreting your skipping school or drinking or whatever else is going on as my fault as your parent. I look at your behavior in a way that says something's wrong with me. I must have been a bad father. I must be a bad person. But I know none of that is true. Your behavior is not a reflection on me. The truth of me cannot bear capital T truth of me, cannot bear that I'm a failure as a parent or a failure in any sense. I need to be in touch with the higher self in order to maintain my peace. And I should not enter into a discussion with my teenager if I am not at peace. Only when I am calm and have done my own work, only then can I expect good results from asking my teenager how she's been feeling lately. For example, how does it feel to skip classes and be sent to the principal's office? How she feels will lead to a belief, and the next step is to help her heal that belief. In any difficulty with a child, my first job is to ask myself, what am I feeling? What is coming up for me? What do I believe about me right now in this situation? If I do that honestly, my child will respond because he'll know I'm not accusing him or holding him responsible for what I'm feeling. Above all, be honest about your feelings. Don't hide them and don't make them important. So be honest. Be directly in touch with them, feel them, and don't make them the goal. Understand they are the path to uncovering the false belief, and dismantling that false belief is the goal. And second, never indulge your feelings. Don't sit in them like a dirty bath. Don't wallow in them. Don't be patient with your feelings. Why would I be patient with feeling like garbage? Don't be patient. Be intolerant of feeling less than gloriously happy. Don't be patient and do not judge. Simply use the feelings for the only purpose they have, healing and joining. Einstein is quoted here as saying, A human being is a part of the whole, W-H-O-L-E, called by us the universe. A part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts, and feeling as something separated from the rest. It's a kind of an optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to an affection for a few persons nearest to us. 
Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. That's attributed to Einstein. The summary of this chapter 7 is, point number one, you must feel the feelings in your upset. You have to feel it to heal it. Point number two, own the feelings at all times. Point number three, we choose our feelings based on who we think we are. Point number four, if you're on medication, you may not have easy access to your feelings. Point number five, allowing feelings and processing them with children is good parenting. Point number six, do not be intolerant or indulgent with your feelings. I read that wrong. Do not be tolerant or indulgent with your feelings. Use them as the red flags, as the signposts, as the guidance system to direct you toward the negative beliefs that need to be identified and dismantled. Now, in that whole business about the Einstein quote, it ties beautifully into what I, one of the things I wanted to bring up. Um, Alan Cohen, in his Course in Miracles uh, Made Easy book, as I was listening to it this morning, there's a whole section on uh, special relationships and how the Course in Miracles is always warning us against special relationships. And it might seem as though there's a paradox or there's a conflict because, of course, you know, every, almost every time this comes up, we have people in the support group, sometimes on the Internet show, who talk about, well, that's ridiculous. Of course I'm going to have more feelings for my immediate family or my lover or my wife or my husband or my dog than somebody else's dog or somebody else's child, etc. And it's a very nice to my eye and ear in the Course in Miracles Made Easy book um, some clarification that doesn't always come across when people just talk about how the Course in Miracles says special relationships are a problem. And so the, the essence of uh, the situation in a special relationship in The Course in Miracles ties directly into Dr. Michael Rice's definition of a codependent relationship. For Dr. Michael Rice, he says, anytime I think or speak as though someone outside of me is responsible for my emotional state, I've just created a codependent relationship. So it isn't that we aren't supposed to 
have special affection for one person or another. However, as Einstein points out in this quote, if we're not able to extend that same level of acceptance and affection towards everyone and all of creation, it creates a kind of a prison for us. So in a summary uh, of this, what I think is a lovely chapter that Alan Cohen has in Course in Miracles Made Easy, there's a section titled Specialness That Works. And this is something I wanted to read today. He writes, A Course in Miracles does not ask us to give up special relationships. Attractions and preferences come with the human package. So, marry the person who ignites your spirit. Hang your hat where you feel at home. Worship at the church that expresses your faith. Root for your favorite sports team. Vacation at your chosen resort. And order that crumb brulee for dessert. Just keep your preferences in perspective and don't lose your peace over them. The moment you grow irritable because your spouse doesn't take out the garbage or your flight is delayed, or your neighbors go to the wrong church, now specialness has become your captor. If you can get past strangling your partner, throwing tantrums, or burning non-believers at the stake, you'll do just fine. A Course in Miracles also acknowledges that you have a special function. says special relationships as challenging as they can be provide the most fertile ground for transformation when you turn a special relationship in other words one where you think somebody has to act or be a a certain way in order for you to be happy when you turn that into a holy relationship which is the solution to special relationships you've done the work of a lifetime here's the quote from the Course in Miracles. The holiest of all the spots on earth is where an ancient hatred has become a present love. Close quotes. Special human relationships are already holy in that you're both gleaming facets of a perfect God. Together, you discover your magnificence. A Course in Miracles helps us peel away the veil of specialness from our holy relationship so we can release, as Robert Browning described, the imprisoned splendor. So when I understand that I'm creating my upset and nobody else is creating it, when I understand I have the option to create peace in each moment, and then I feel a special affection for someone, and I extend my, my peace, my awareness of my true nature as love. I view the world through Rachma and Kuba, these filters in the brain and the mind over intention and perception set to these to these filters that only allow accurate perception. They only allow intentions keyed 
to love to be used as the building blocks for my goals if I only perceive the light of creation, the shimmering radiance as the way of mastery would call it, and I, I refuse to cooperate with anything less than that coming from another person or in a situation in my life. If I choose that, and I feel great affection for my my closest friends or my co-workers or the people that live in my town, then all is well. It's the holy relationship because I'm tapping into my true nature as this creative essence and extending that in my interaction with others. I'm seeing their true nature as that radiant energy of creation that some would call love, and I'm choosing to cooperate only with that. That's the holy relationship. The special relationship that The Course in Miracles warns against is when I trick myself into believing that I need this other person to be here in order for me to feel this peace or this happiness or this joy or this bliss state. Not only do I need them here, I need them to speak and act in just a certain way in order for me to have that peace. So that's pretty much what I was hoping to offer for the day. We have uh, about 14 minutes left, 563-999-3581. Plenty of time for comments, questions, refutations. Call that number, press 1 on your phone. Let us know how we can support you. How is this landing, reading the Choose Again process? What is your understanding of specialness in a relationship and the benefits or traps thereof? I have, as I've mentioned recently, I have a number of people I'm working with who are going through very intense life situations, lots and lots of stress, lots and lots. And by stress, I mean situations that are demanding that they adapt, that they change, that they do something to cope with this situation. That's one of the Hans Seeley's uh, definitions for stress is any situation that requires adaptation from the organism or the individual. And of course, as we, we understand in this work and we observe over and over again, I'm the one that creates how much stress I generate internally as a mental emotional tension in response to a life situation. And I create more and more of that if I, I create a, a sense of this is bad or wrong and then on top of that, I decide to pour most of my energy into what I think should be instead of what is. That's the way that I dramatically increase the amount of stress that I experience. And if I'm in any situation 
and I begin to feel what I would experience, what I would uh, label as a high level of stress, one of the most important things for me to do is recognize that most of my energy right now is focused on something I don't have any control over. I'm focused on what the way I think things should be rather than being focused on the way things actually are. And the quickest way for me to decrease my stress in that moment is to shift the focus of most of my energy over to what is and begin to work with that rather than continue to focus most of my energy on the judgment that what is is bad or wrong and that I want something else and here's what I know is right and how, how things should be. The more energy I pour into this image in my mind of how I want things to be, the more stress I'm going to generate inside my psyche, inside my mental emotional experience. And that's why we talk so much, so frequently about the benefits of living from direct observation. Because direct observation is not focused on I'm right and the world is wrong and this is how it should change to get better. Direct observation is focused on capital T truth, what is actually unfolding in front of me. And as we understand in this work, I will be able to get closer and closer to perceiving the capital T truth the more I actively work to dismantle, disassemble, shebag, cancel any process that creates a disturbance within me, a disturbance in terms of a negative emotional state because hostility and fear and all of their stepchildren as emotional states simply distort my perception. I want to get closer and closer to accurate perception. I need to actively work to dis dismantle any process within me that creates the negative emotional state. One of the best ways to do that is cancel my need to be right when I think this is what's happening in life and this is wrong and this shouldn't be and it should be this way and I think it would be much better for this or that. Canceling my need to be right and in the next breath, shifting my focus of attention over to what is and asking to be shown how, given the state of what actually is, how I can use this flow of life and what little I have control over to be a blessing to myself and others. And if I choose to do that, my stress goes down, options expand, opportunities to be a blessing to myself and others get handed to me on a regular basis. And I, what I have found is that it leads to my dramatically improved experience of life on a regular basis. So I, I just looked up and realized this is a Thursday, so I should mention that we have a support group coming today from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central, and it's available. And um, uh, 
All the information you would need to join us, absolutely free, is available at the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. And all you need is your internet connection and the Zoom link. And we are grateful to everyone who chooses to join us. And we frequently put out the request that you share that information with anybody you think who might benefit from it. And uh, feel free to join us or pass that information along to somebody else. Tomorrow, if there's no questions received or hands that go up at the beginning of the show, we'll go back to reading from Diedrich Wolzak's book, Six, Choose Again, Six Steps to Freedom, and we'll begin with Chapter 8. And um, he goes into more depths in Step 4 in Chapter 8, Remembering My Ancient Feelings. And the beginning of, of that chapter, he quotes The Course in Miracles as saying, Discomfort is aroused only to bring the need for correction into awareness. And this is very similar to the quote that we refer to in the Way of Mastery, where it says, reactivity of any kind indicates the need for forgiveness. And in that work, forgiveness is defined as dismantling perceptions that lead to upset. So, very much the same message when my irritability gets revealed to me it's not a punishment it's not karma it's not karma in the sense of a punishment and I did something untoward in the past and now I have to suffer the repercussions it's that if I'm holding on to energies that don't belong in my system the system is set up to help me become aware of that so that I can dismantle those energies, so I can heal. Another way that's talked about in the way of mastery is that when an irritation comes back again and again, it's simply giving me an opportunity to bring new presence, new awareness to energies that once defeated me. I get another chance to bring the choice for love into conscious awareness in the presence of this situation which has in the past been connected within my mind and my energy system with upset, with trauma, with, as Diedrich Wolzak would say, with a negative belief about myself. The more I can be clear about those negative beliefs, the more I can dismantle them with whatever process I choose that works for me, the better my experience of life will be. And that's, that's our invitation. Bring us into clarity about what we're doing to create any upset within ourselves, within our life experience, so we can choose again. We can choose to release 
or we can choose to dismantle, or we can choose for love, to use a slightly different phrase. That's the invitation with this work. So, thank you to all of you who've been on the call today. There's quite a few people listening. And thank you to anybody who wants to refer somebody to our support groups on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And please remember that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Hard to believe when you're raised in the Western mindset, but it's true. We come from love. We're made of love. We are love. And all these other belief systems and patterns that we've been indoctrinated into are false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Jean. I appreciate it. You're very welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. I hope that technology holds as it has. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too, thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio. Today is Thursday, October the 12th, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that's you and Q to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. And we're starting just a little bit early, so um, I'll let Michael know that we're already on and uh, give him a moment to get dialed in. Okay. But... Uh, Go to the website and look around, look at some of the changes. Let me know if anything's not working for you. Drop me a line at Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at whyagain.org. And let me know, and I will do my best to get it corrected. And I'm refreshing my screen again. For some reason, room doesn't seem to want to work. There it goes. Awesome. Yeah, Blog Talks had a few glitches, but, you know, as uh, we started doing this in January of 2011, and we've had very few days that it hasn't worked or that we haven't been able to get on. And um, So we are thankful for it and glad that we have this opportunity to talk to people all over the globe. And we're here to support you. That's what the purpose of this show is. So press 1 and let us know what direction you would like the show to go today. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. It is an honor to get to uh, continue this ongoing conversation and create a record for the bringing of a an ever-deepening understanding of this process of first-century Aramaic forgiveness into into the world. And I had a, what for me was a, a kind of an interesting insight this morning, actually, 
do an exchange with a massage therapist here and was having this work done on me and uh, hit a particular point in my back. Uh, many of you probably know my history. You know, my mother had toxemia the last six days I was in utero and they gave her Pitocin for six days to try to kick me out. And uh, they notified my father that if he wanted to see me alive, he better show up that night at the hospital because I wasn't going to be alive in the morning. Four or five times the first year of my life was on the verge of death, lived on inhaler pills. And as this uh, person was working on me today, hit a spot on my spine. My lungs were, you know, were always my nemesis. Actually, the wheeze that had been in my lung from the day I was born, you know, as long as I could remember, disappeared the third day of having COVID with my lung history and, you know, the number of times I've circled the earth, the thing they call age that I'm not buying. Uh, <laughs> I should have been dead. And uh, three days later, a wheeze that had been in my lungs from the beginning of my life, you know, every moment of my life was gone. And today, as I was being worked on, a particular point in my back was hit. It was like someone took a spray can of paint and sprayed it inside my lungs. When she hit that point on my spine, she hit it twice. It was like a push button. You know, when she hit that point, my lungs just filled up with this. Like I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't inhale. All I could do was just violently cough to try to throw this toxicity out. And what occurred to me is, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of years working on unwinding the dynamics that need to be healed, and and the dynamics that be need to be unwound in each and every one of us starts with what happens in the mind. If you go to Yeshua, you go to the opening words in the book of John, and they quote his words incorrectly in the Greek, but in the Aramaic, rather than saying in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh, what it says is in the beginning was the mind energy, and the mind energy became flesh. So recognizing that when you think a thought what the cell biologists are telling us today, and you can just do a quick search for Bruce Lipton uh, and uh, how mind energy, how thoughts become neuropeptides. Neuropeptides circulate out on the structure till they find a cell with the receptor that matches, lands on the cell, and if you were watching from the inside of the cell when that neuropeptide lands on the cell, what you would say is there's chemistry coming into the cell. When Slady hit the point on my spine, it was like she was spraying a push button on a can of paint inside of my lungs. It just instantly, I mean, it was just instant. And realizing how long I've worked to undo, to unwind these things, the thought came of understanding why people get introduced to this work absolutely fall in love with the idea of it, but they don't want to do it. Because you've got to face what's in there. 
you know, after I violently coughed, she hit that point. She's like, oh, oh I, you know, it's like, no, find it again, hit it again. I want to clean everything that's in there out of there, even though it was, I don't even know how to describe how traumatic it was in my lungs. I suspect probably going right back, something that had been stored in tissue right back in those early days, perhaps even a reflection of the Pitocin, the poison they tried to give my mother to force contractions to force my birth. I don't know, but I got the sense it was really, really early. And and you know, it was like, whoa, whoa, I apologize. No, no, find the point again and push it harder. Like, I, I, I realize this energy locked in the cells of my structure are what destroy the cells of the structure. If you can find that spot again, let's hit it. And she did get it a second time, not quite as strongly as the first. But just to to transfer the idea, to just invite everybody into the willingness. And I could share with you for hours some of the healing crisis that I've been through. And... I mean, it. I, can, I remember one time I was in Arizona and the people I was staying with, I was on the road, I was into, went into a healing crisis and they literally thought I was going to die. The release, the cleansing that took place was so deep. So understanding why people don't want to go there, don't want to deal with it, and certainly don't want to see things inside of themselves truly as they are is quite understandable. But when you realize it either eats at your tissue structure, and they call the eating away of the tissue structure by toxic mind energy, aging. You know, it happens over time, so people think that time is the enemy. Time is not the enemy. In fact, I come back to one of my favorite quotes burned into my brain 40 years ago at a medical conference where they quoted a piece of research done by a group called the DeCourcy Clinic in Cincinnati. Jeannie usually, when I repeat this, comes up with the exact quote because there are a few words that are off. It's a little more explicit. But what burned in, the essence of it, okay, so go for it if you read it. You're just like that. I love that about you. (laughs) Time is not toxic. All of those who develop a time neurosis subscribe to the prevalent superstition that time is in some way a poison exerting a mysterious cumulative action. Time has no effect on human tissue under any condition. Vigor does not necessarily vary inversely with the age of an adult. Belief in the effects of time by those who subscribe to such a belief is the thing that acts as a poison. To put it another way, there is no scientific basis for believing, as most of us do, that the passage of years automatically causes their bodies to age. And presumably, that would go for spirit and mind as well. It is ignorance of the truth about the passage of time, the report continues, that causes us to cringe in fear before the accumulation of years. We need not surrender to age if our minds are sufficiently enlightened. 
and we do our work, clean up the toxic mess, the toxic dump. So the way that presents itself in my mind still today, and again, it's at least 40 years ago. It might even be 45 years ago. It was really early in developing this work. And what I recall from that medical conference was time is not toxic. Time has no effect on human tissues under any conditions. It is a belief in the effects of time by those who subscribe to such a belief that acts as a poison. So when you realize how toxic the mind energy is and the resultant energetic patterns stuck, you know, as, as I said, I, the only comparison I have when she hit that point today was, was it was like somebody sprayed a, a can of spray paint inside of my lungs, highly toxifying. It was just like instant. I, I don't even, I, I don't even have enough words to describe how intense it was. And realizing that I'm carrying that around with me. No, the answer wasn't to say you're sorry for that. It's like, yay, thanks for hitting that point. Now let's go after it again and see if there's any more of that in there. So what we're really inviting each person to do is to turn back the clock to youth, to take the load off of tissue that makes it look like the tissue's aged because tissue can't age. It's not possible. Out of that experience, as we discussed it, as we were processing during that session, what clicked for me in my brain is, you know, they, they talk about the Bible as the book of books. Your body, your what we call your body, your energy system is the book of books. And your whole family history your whole cultural history is written in that book. Every generation, everything that's gone down from day one is in your structure. And what this man Yeshua with his tool of forgiveness is inviting us to do, what we're inviting you to do with this work is to turn the energy system that we call your body back into a purified system that holds only the energetic patterns that you are designed for, came with the package initially. And if we just take an interlude to take a moment and think about holding a newborn child and tapping into the essence of that newborn, this is a question we've asked of tens of tens of thousands of people over the years. Everybody's answer is the same. When we say, what's the essence of the newborn? Everybody's answer is that of love. And then if you ask yourself the question, is the newborn loving you? Is that what you mean? No, 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 no. The newborn doesn't even know I'm here. The newborn is love. We're looking to bring you love back into full expression in your structure and invite you to open every valve, every door, every gateway, every barrier, every veil in your temple that holds back an energy that is toxic to human life, i.e., how deeply is that stuff held? Well, 
If you're designed to be eternal and in a hundred years or less, your system has been destroyed, your temple has been destroyed, and you look at the fact that everybody in our bloodline, over 120, is dead, structured in your structure and mine is death. I mean, it's, it's part of the process. It appears to be natural. My offering is it is not natural. It's totally and completely unnatural. And it's up to us to unwind what does not belong in the structure. And the skill required to do that is the skill of breathing through any kind of energetic pattern that is not reflective of love, embracing the underlying what has, in a, on a physiological level, become chemistry, but ultimately to embrace it as the original energy that it was in the presence of love. And when that happens, the toxic effects are transmuted. They are disappeared from the cell. They are disappeared from the gene. So the invitation is to embrace everything, not everything you've been through, but everything that your mother and father have been through that they never resolved, that their mothers and fathers and their mothers and fathers and their mothers and fathers before them went through and never resolved, were never able to bring to the space of love for healing. So it's not a short-term project. It's not something that's easy to do. I wish... I could have sat with someone who'd been doing it for a half a century and knew where the pitfalls were and knew where the effective tools were to shorten the time that it takes to work through it. Because not everybody is going to, one, have the brain cells, and two, decide to spend 50 years of their lives full-time understanding how the tools work bring them into a form that are usable, and then sharing them. And that's what we're here to do, to make it available. And, of course, to demonstrate, you know, when someone calls in, you'll notice that basically the bottom line of every process, if you go back to, you know, year one, minute one, 12 years ago of this show, you'll notice that the basic element of healing the basic thing that I'm working with, with everyone who calls, or the genes working with, with everyone who calls, or what we're working with, with whatever comes up in us, is always to correct the mind energy that forms a picture that inhibits the ability to function as love, as a human being. Now, the people who will go on a physical quest, thinking, oh, you see, we just have to fix the physical. Well, we've got to get smart here. Let's go back to Albert Einstein. Here's what he says. On such things as matter, we've been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have become so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. What we call matter are these quanta packets of energy, quantum physics, that they're these packets of energy 
that are reduced in their rate of vibration so that they appear to be physical, that we've developed senses to decode those frequencies. But that's all they are, energetic patterns and frequencies. And if we engage in energetic patterns that are toxic to the system, then the system goes into a deeper state of toxicity until it self-destructs. So the reason why, for instance, when somebody does an intensive, it comes to Heartland, we do a total fresh and raw food program, is to strengthen on an energetic level, giving the system as much organic food as possible in its natural state so that the energetic patterns that are in the food that are designed to support the development of this energetic system we call a body, so that they're there. The average person runs off to the latest fast food restaurant the minute something comes up in their face and stuffs themselves with some sort of sugar, salt, or fat. And you look at all, you know, virtually every restaurant you go to, oh, there'll be different spices in it, different flavorings. But in essence, what every restaurant owner asks when you place your order is, what kind of sugar, what kind of salt, what kind of fat do you want? I don't care if it's Mediterranean food or it's, you know, the, the toxic fast food places that serve some of the most atrocious materials in the world. One of the things we enjoy, and we were really thankful for the fact that our garden has been really, the last couple of years since we started gardening, producing these awesome tomatoes, because that was one of our favorite foods. We just watched the documentary the other day. And guess where, if you order your favorite brand of tomato sauce out of Italy, it says made in Italy, guess where the tomatoes were grown? One of the most toxic places in the world, one of the most toxic environments in the world is China right now, sadly. One of the areas where a particular religious group is has lived for, I don't even know how long, has been invaded by the Chinese as they work to eradicate these folks. These are people that, you know, they harvest organs to sell to wealthy people around the world who, who need an organ transplant. And it's just the energetic dynamic there and the abuse that's happened to these people. And I forget exactly what it was. They said a couple of the people talked about you know, they'd come from other areas to come and work the fields to pick tomatoes. There's a, a Chinese general that decided that the tomato business was one of the businesses to go into worldwide. So although they have never really grown tomatoes in China, and, and according to this documentary, the Chinese don't generally eat tomatoes. He's hoping to introduce it to the whole Chinese population. But... The majority of the world's tomatoes now are grown in the Uyghur area of China. They showed 55-gallon or 65-gallon drums of tomato paste coming into factories in Italy. They open it and they say, well, we, we manufacture it here. What do you do? We add some water and some salt, and then we put... 
slapped the label on, made it in Italy, and people think. So why do we do fresh and raw, or if we do an online intensive, why does it include a total dietary regimen, a, a set of menus and directions for how to produce fresh and raw food? Because when you give the structure what it needs, it tends to vitalize it on a level where you can access those things that maybe have been hidden for generations. It's an important part of the process. And from there, we incorporate every tool we can. The still point breathing process, the forgiveness process, the commitment to support people in becoming energetically vital enough to access and process every toxic piece of mind energy from every generation of your bloodline. To develop the skill and the ability to literally reach into your own cells, to reach into your own genes and lift off and remove the neuropeptides that have toxified and destroyed parts of the genetic structure. And they talk about people born with, with the ABC genetic disorder. All the ABC genetic disorder is in this family system, there's an overlay of a frequency that's toxic to whatever organ systems affected by that genetic deficiency. And what forgiveness does collapses what's going on in the mind so that we can begin to really, truly look inside and deal with those things that are held within us. Rather than living in denial, remember our definition of denial, when I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me, then I'm in denial. And when I'm in denial, I have to dissociate from the contents of my mind. I have to dissociate from my own genetic structure. It's called creating an unconscious mind. In the ancient teachings, it was called the veil of the temple. And you remember they said it had to be opened. The veil of the temple must be rent in twain. That was not a purple curtain in a church. Your body, mind, unit is the temple. They were talking about healing. The whole story in those ancient texts is how in antiquity they understood the energy system works. And when you build the brain cells for what they were really talking about, it's so profound. And sadly, a lot of that's been turned around. You know, thoughts like the sins of the fathers will be passed the A into three and four generations. I remember being a kid and being told that. Thinking, I'm going to get punished for what my father did. God's going to get me. When what they understood was how the energetic patterns work from generation to generation, it's called epigenetics. And that they were talking about how physiology works. And forgiveness is how to open the veil of your own temple, your own body-mind unit, and remove what never belonged. Access and remove 
what creates the degeneration in the first place because we're not designed to degenerate. You know, you go back and you look at those ancient texts and they're talking about people who are living to be 800, 900, 1,000 years. It's interesting. I talk to people on occasion about, you know, we're designed to be eternal. And, and so many people, oh, I wouldn't want to live for eternity. Boy, what have you been doing to yourself that, that it's abhorrent to think that living as love, living as a human being for eternity would be something distasteful? What, what have you bought into? What have your generational patterns fed you? What has your culture fed you? That you would say, oh, 100 years is enough. And what if tomorrow morning, seven and a half billion people woke up knowing who they were as love, free of every generational toxic thought, every hate, every fear, every rage, every guilt, every grief, every condemnation, every bit of suffering, if that energy were transmuted and everyone functioned as human beings for, what would this world look like? I'll tell you what, you'd want to hang out in it for eternity. But when we deny and dissociate from the content of our own minds, we hide things from ourselves and we think that by hiding them, we're finished with them. But in fact, by hiding with them, what we do is we cause those things to be integrated into the perceptual constructs of our minds. And there are so many distasteful things that we carry in our genes and in our trained minds from the family system and the cultural system that those things are projected into constructs. And, and yeah, who would want to live in that for eternity? What if you woke up in the morning and you took a breath and it was sweet and your physiology was alert, alive, in deep, deep pleasure, satisfaction? You got up to move and everything moved in a fluid way and physiology produced only reflections based in love? and you knew yourself as a conscious creator, and you engage in the creative process of your day for whatever it was you chose you were going to do for today or do for the next 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 years? Who would choose oblivion to that? I'd offer only those who haven't done their work and are terrorized by what they carry around inside of them and they try to escape from in their lives. And yet there's no escape because being a creator, whatever you carry, whatever you hold, your creation will reflect that. So the invitation is to awaken to the truth of Yourself as that newborn essence, as literally active present love, extending that active present love to everyone that you connect with so that your physiology, your mind, your emotions are filled with that active present love 24-7, 365. 
what would it be like if tomorrow seven and a half billion people woke up in that state, including you and I, and we were we just went for it? Joining you in the willingness to go there. Any other thoughts for you on that one, Jeannie? No, you covered that very well. I just went out and checked to see if we had any questions by email, and there's none out there either. Got several people on switchboard. Somebody press one. What's been your experience using these tools? You know, I worked with someone earlier, and well, I've worked with him several times over the last few weeks, and every time he'll always say, this is so hard. And I'm like, no, it takes effort. I said, but living life without facing what's in there is what's hard because life's going to come around and, and it might tap you on the shoulder and then it'll punch you and then it might hit you with a two-by-four, cancel all those thoughts. I said, you know, it's uh, life's going to bring to you what you're holding inside. So taking the effort to do the work to clean it out, yeah, it takes effort, but it's not hard. Yeah, living without the tools, living in that old trauma-based unconscious mind, that's a hard way to live. <laughs> You're right. It does take effort to go in there and clean it up. But, oh, living there is so much sweeter, so much better. And and what are we likely to find in there? Well, one of the best scripters, and I, I kind of find it humorous, although it's tragic when you listen to it, comes from a man who wrote back somewhere between 1650 and 1715. This guy, Francois Fenelon, died in 1715. So it was written, you know, better than 300 years ago. And here's what he says. As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we're filled with horror. Bear in mind, for your comfort, that when we perceive our malady, when the cure begins. So people who live in denial, you know, you just look at them. You can just turn on the TV. I guarantee if you just search for two minutes, you'll find many people who will be up there proclaiming their innocence and their intelligence and how good their minds are and how good their words are and how perfect they are and how they know how to fix the world. And then you watch as these things that Fenelon's speaking about spew out of their mouths on everyone who isn't willing to pony up and say, yeah, that's right, you are the best of the best. Nikolai Berdyev wrote this, kind of fits in with Fenelon. Knowledge requires great daring. It means victory over ancient 
primeval terror. It must also be said of knowledge that it is bitter. And there's no escaping that bitterness. Particularly bitter is moral knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. But the bitterness is due to the fallen nature and state of the world. There is a deadly pain in the very distinction of good and evil, of the valuable and the worthless. So when we compare ourselves with the ideal, the possible, and look at what has motivated us, when you realize that those motivations, those generational patterns are what force behavior, and when you begin to act against them and you begin to wake up from them and you begin to wade your way through them, it can be pretty horrific. But only because you're making conscious contact with what is already in the unconscious and therefore, if it's never dealt with, is literally what is killing you. Carl Jung kind of addresses this issue. He writes, the demise of society won't be from physical threats, but mass delusion, a collective psychosis of sorts. Greater than all the physical dangers are the tremendous effects of delusional ideas, which are yet denied all reality by our world-blinded consciousness. And just take a look. I mean, look at the political situation today. And what Carl Jung wrote, I'm not even sure what year that would have been, probably 100 years ago. There it is. Collective psychosis of a world-blinded consciousness. Our much-vaunted reason and our boundlessly overestimated will are sometimes utterly powerless in the face of unreal thoughts. But if you have the tools, then you can work through those things. Young goes on to say, anything new should always be questioned and tested with caution, for it may very easily turn out to be only a new disease. That is why true progress is impossible without mature judgment. It takes time to develop the brain cells. Young called this nature that Fenelon was writing about, he called it the wolf inside. He said the wolf inside is a far more of a threat to human existence than external forces. Just take a look at the political discourse going on right now. When mental forces become so toxic, toxic he says, as to harm our overall well-being on an individual and collective level, a psychic epidemic can result. He warned that modern society was prone to collapse due to the pandemic of delusional idea. So there's work to be done. And many people are like, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with the past. And anybody who doesn't want anything to do with the past, their present becomes simply a reflection of the past because their creative process is limited by what they carry within them. 
Young goes on to say the man who is unconscious of historical context and lets slip his link with the past is in constant danger of succumbing to the crazes and delusions engendered by all novelties. Man cannot live, he says, without religion. So you make it up. Now, when he's talking about religion, what he's talking about is there has to be, in order for a culture to survive, in order for a society to survive, there has to be a common understanding of life at the root of it, of that culture. You cannot have a central myth to live by. Pardon me. I misread that, and it's, you, you must hold a central myth to live by. And what Jung is talking about is that if we lose that, if we don't have this collective unifying principle, then all kinds of insanity shows up. If an individual is hurting financially or on any level, losing a job, having trouble with their mortgage, having trouble feeding themselves in a relationship, then they're more likely to listen to the extremist ideologies that is beyond their control. It means that you have to integrate your own darkness, wrestle with your own paradoxes, and start projecting out onto other people. the opposite of that which is inside of you. So the, the invitation is to take on your, what the world might call your lower nature, to face it every moment. And of course, one of the pitfalls in doing that is that many people don't believe that their lower nature is theirs because they live in such denial they project it on everybody else. But we've got a, a cure for that one. We've got a fix for that. Because the world is so stuck in the lie, you made me mad, you made me sad, because the one world religion of blame is literally the universal religion that virtually everybody lives in. that we can lie to ourselves and we can say to somebody else, you made me mad, and we believe it, that the cause of our anger comes from out there. You made me sad, you hurt me, and we believe it, that the cause is out there. And the cure we have in that regard is pretty simple and straightforward. How do you tell whether or not something you're feeling is yours or not? And the way you tell is by acknowledging you're feeling it. Yes, we can put this projector called the mind in between the truth and ourselves, and we can instruct the projector to make, make me believe that what I'm feeling is caused by someone else rather than triggered into activity by someone else. So if you're feeling it, it's yours, and there's work to be done. So pick up the tools and do the work. 
And what you'll find is the pressure, the pressure cooker that most people live in, you start to let off the steam when you engage in your inner work. You start to remove the propensity toward any form of hostility or fear. And you get to function more and more and more as the active presence of love. Nothing in the external world has to change for you to do that. All that needs to change is the set point inside of yourself. And stepping into the place of responsibility is a part of the key in that process. So we are here to open the space for understanding that. And we invite you to step in and use the tools. And then share your experience of them with us. Share your journey. Ask your questions. How can we support you? What's on your mind? Share a success with us. Share a challenge with us. If you're listening to the show on one of the stations where we can't see you in our control panel, then the call-in number for the show is 563-999-3581. We invite you to call that number. And when you do, you'll be listening directly to the show. And then if you have something to share, if you have a question or a thought, push one, and we're having a conversation. So if you're out there in listener land, let's have a conversation. How can we support you? What's on your mind? Five six three. Club. Say it again, sweetie. And this afternoon is the book club, so everybody join us for that. Yep. Key in if you would. Uh, the link is in the notes for a Zoom call that we'll be doing at three thirty Eastern time. It'll be eight thirty PM in London, England, where the book club is situated. And we thank Yinka for having that uh that gateway into the world for sharing these tools and uh, and extending them to many, many people that we'd otherwise not see, assisting us to fulfill our vision of making these tools available to quite literally every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to probably stand in front of 7.5 billion people, but our commitment is to put in enough hands that we reach a critical mass that opens the space for the next level of people comprehending the real work that needs to be done. So if you're out there in Nesterland, let's talk about it. Press one. How can we support you? What's on your mind? We have a hand up. Sweet. Let's say hello. Mr. Terry, 336, you're on the air. Good afternoon, folks. Well, hey there, young man. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I am, I am. And um, 
always a pleasure doing this work is uh, like uh, one of the sayings that comes up a lot and uh, for for me in the program you know is that uh, it's simple but it ain't easy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's for you sure got, yeah you got to do it to experience it and doing it requires effort and it requires work and so one of the things that I'm experiencing right now is that um uh, come through another little piece of uh, information or experience around my own uh, uh, codependency and uh, and in my denial around uh, what's going on, uh, covered up by you know wanting it to, to be different and. Uh, um, enabling people and uh, the, the the triangle or the circle uh, between uh, becoming the um, rescuer, the victim and the persecutor and that dynamic and uh, doing doing them all at once. Well, you know, one step, one, probably all at once across different situations, but uh, specifically, you know, it works as a, uh, with, uh, I'll just, my example is, okay, so I'm, I hired a guy, he's trying, he's doing good, has a problem, and I help him a little bit, and then he has another problem, and then I help him, I, at some point I've crossed the line, and I'm enabling him, and I'm trying to rescue him, and then the next thing you know, you know, uh, from uh, all appearances, uh, you know, I, I've gotten the shaft again to put it in, put it in the other way. Oh. And then I become the victim. Yeah, I become the victim, and and then I'm gonna be the persecutor, and 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 uh, I'm right back in that universal uh, club, is it that we call it the uh, one where we blame. Uh, others for yeah the one world well, one world religion to blame <laughs> one world religion to blame yeah that's a good one yeah, I write yeah. yeah. card carrying members one, we all one are, world we all all learned that one card carrying member one world religion of blame and then and then my ego doesn't want to admit oh no you know you're supposed to be further along than this you you should know better. Uh, then that's the the fault and the guilt and the blame and oh it just spirals all in and so uh, it, it's like a vast tumbler of uh, uh, stuff you know and then when, then when I listen to you talking about the genetics and all the stuff that we you know we we sign up for it so we can just let the blame go because I made a commitment to myself you know no matter what. Uh, I'm gonna show up and do my best. May not be pretty at times, but uh, what is there left to do? You know, one world religion of blame, card carried member. Yeah. So I thought I'd just throw that out there that uh, uh, it comes up, and that's when it's important for me to have a support system. 
and to have like you've been a support system for over two decades, and uh, that's a big statement. That's a big statement. And when yeah, you been have hanging out for a long while, people, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, and you de- when you develop relationships based on truth, uh, they can help me carry forward. Uh, even through the roughest time, and um, there's some appreciation in there for sure, expressing appreciation to you. And uh, and I was doing that Accepted. different Thank you. worksheet. Yeah, you're welcome. And so I've got a couple of different versions of the worksheet, and, I, and I'm traveling. I traveled up to my, I call him my bone doctor. He's the one who's been working with me a little bit on this since I had that accident, you know. Right, and uh, we're right. making progress, and it's documented, and we're getting through the stuff, and it's all good. And I like the guy. He's, he's from Missouri. You know, so we always talk a little bit about Missouri. And um, he's a youngster. I see that. You know, he's in his 30s, and so, you know, he seems like a kid. But he's a full, full-fledged full uh, you know, medical doctor. And uh, right. he's very open-minded to, to input and uh, and hearing what's what I've got to say and offer, so there's another support piece. You know, it's like I got you, I got a doctor that I trust to support. You know, to support me, and I can say whatever I feel like I want to say, and, and I feel like I'm heard. You know, and um, that's that's just so essential. And, and now Jeannie's been yeah, agree. hanging out there, yeah, just hanging out there and, and just sticking with it and acknowledging Jeannie on that and just persevering. Because anybody that signs up, you know, they're going to get some stuff here that they're not going to want to look at or deal with or own. That's my opinion, you know. And um, uh, <laughs> opinion based I admire on experience, someone, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I admire anyone that's willing to just to do that. Yeah. So that's what I'm offering so let's, for the conversation today. Oh, let's go back well, to that word input for a second. Let's, well, what I was going to say something. is uh, let, let's go back to the message you were delivering to yourself as you talked about that cycle of the victim-persecutor complex. What was the message that you were delivering to yourself that was down on you about your interaction with this fellow that uh, you're supporting? Oh, the, oh, I was a sucker, you know, but I was a sucker, but I was a willing volunteer. I set myself up. Why is this happening to me again? You know better than this. You could see it's coming. You got your little ulterior motives. I mean, just really, you know, kind of roughing myself up on that. It's like you, you always got the little ulterior motive, and then it goes wrong. And once it crosses the line, then there's a big mess, and then you got to, you know, work through all that again. So is that what you're kind of asking about? That's what I'm kind of asking about. So have you, when, when you face <laughs> that sort of a circumstance, what you're 99.99999% of the time, you're facing a power person dynamic. Oh, yeah. Back to the so power. So how did it feel? Yeah. yeah. How did your power feel when your power person delivered that message to you? And well, are you ready to forgive? 10. Well, whatever the core message was, 
that you're delivering to yourself about the way you're interacting with this fellow? Oh, you can't be trusted, you sneaky dog. Ah, okay. So that would be the starting point for the next version. Okay, so, so there are two types of power person messages. There's the active message, the message that the power person delivers to us. And so that would be, you know, the kind of message that usually it's something about how you, you're broken. But then there's the passive person message as well. This is kind of a new piece that I've started to work on and started to understand. And and this would be an example of the passive power person message. I can't trust. You breathing on that one? Yes, I'm breathing and, and uh, trying to figure it out. Okay. So remember the number one pseudo solution of the non-being mind is so I could just figure this out. In the next 10 billion years, you won't figure it out, I guarantee you. But you can forgive us to that message. And what would be productive, I would offer, would be worksheets on yourself in that circumstance with your power person and with the current situation, both. And then worksheets on the power person themselves. So worksheet on carry in that, where that conclusion is reached, where that passive power person message is taken on. I can't trust anybody. So that would be a worksheet where carries the object to attention. And then worksheets where the power person is the object to attention. And then worksheets where the current place where that's being projected in this interaction with this fellow that you're working with. Each of yeah. those would be productive for, for collapsing into the root dynamic that's common in this whole thing and forgiving it, removing it from your structure. Are you breathing? I'm breathing and I'm writing, making notes here, drawing pictures, worksheets, power people, three little symbols, I got them in a little bubble, and and I I get it because I've experienced the root revelation that comes when I'm doing uh, multiple power sheets and then all of a sudden that, aha, I see the common thread. That's a beautiful experience when that happens. That's it, yeah. And this would probably be a good situation to do the full, not, I mean, do the forgiveness, the reality management process, but also do that new 14-page uh, power person worksheet to yeah. really unwind all of the energetic dynamics behind it. You know, ultimately, what we want to do is unwind every mind energy pattern held anywhere in the structure. I had some interesting feedback and I'd sent that worksheet is only available to people who do the codependence intensive. And there's a young lady who 
I've known for 40 some years, started to do this work way back when, and she's really been engaged. She hadn't done the intensive, but when I came up with the most recent one that I sent you, I sent her a copy just to share it with her. And it was interesting to get her feedback. I was like, oh, this is too detailed. This goes too far. Who would ever want to go in and do that level of work? And it's like, well, <laughs> let's see. Those are the levels of your mind that are manifesting in your physiology and in your world as problems, and you don't want to face it, and you don't want to do that piece of work. Okay, well, you know, everybody's got a choice to make, but it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> You know, you go back to the ancient teaching where they, they like, they, they understood exactly how they said, nothing will remain hidden. Everything will be made known in the light of day. <laughs> so why would anyone have a trauma energy that they wouldn't want to process through, knowing that it's going to come sneak up on them and bite them in the butt at the least expected moment, you know? It's like, <laughs> what else is there to do but clean it up? And that was sort of the, the thesis behind doing that that really extended uh, power person worksheet to really look at every aspect in terms of the mind energy that needs to be cleaned up. They're almost out of time. Let me throw more on the table here. So I have a person, they pretend interest, or they do have interest. Maybe they have real interest. I don't know. Handle some tools, and, oh, then they're, they're looking like they're, and then they just leave them. Don't even think, you know, that it's like yep. as soon as they get out of yep. my sight, there's like no interest. It's just a game. Then I come, then I look at betrayal and apathy and, uh, you know, even old disgust. And uh, these are some of the stuff what opportunities? that come up with me, you know. Yeah. Mm. You mean you you actually get to look at the things you brought to the party? Yeah. When they, a, don't, when they don't follow through with with your goals for them. <laughs> That's right. Isn't it interesting how we can project that stuff, though? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not pretty. No, no, none of it is. As Fenelon wrote, it's pretty intense. You know, filthy reptiles, he calls them. It's coming from a hidden cave. Filthy reptiles. Yeah. yeah. And then the other, on the other hand, though, that, that, that description you described about how we could live. I'm experiencing it, and I do experience that. I have, you know, periods, moments, little segments of where everything's right in the world. Everything is beautiful and perfect. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, worth, that's worth working for. You got it. You got it. It is worth working for, for sure. So joining in doing the process, Terry. It is. We're down to just the last few seconds, so it's going to cut us off. Appreciate you, my friend. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. 
BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.